Awesome. Okay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Now, <laughs> we're not doing that all again, are we? Um, we know that Purim and Pesach are deeply connected. How do we know this? In reality, there are sort of a, two ends of the year. Purim is like the December of the Jewish year. It's in Adar, which is the last month. And Pesach is in the January of the new year, because Nisan is the first of the months, right? The Torah tells us that the month of Nisan is the first of months, is the first of the years, the months of the year. So if that's the case, really, Pesach is the beginning of the year and Perm's all the way to the end of the year. Is there a connection? There is a connection. How do I know this? I'll show you a few different ways that I know this. In the in Megillah, in Tractate Megillah, in the Talmud, in Mesechus Megillah, the Gemara there is talking about what do you do if you have a leap year? So in the Jewish calendar, a leap year means two months of Adar, right? The rest of, you know, we are always trying to outshine everybody. They have one day of Xmas. We have eight days of Hanukkah. They have a one day leap year, February 29th. We do a whole month of a leap year. Adar B. You know what I'm saying? What's up? That's right. Oh, you thought you were had it going on with one extra day. Yeah, we got a whole extra month. What's up? What's up? Right? So we have a whole extra month, the month of Adar, Adar Bays. Okay? Now the Gemara says, in a leap year, when you have an Adar Aleph and an Adar Bays, right? Adar 1 and Adar 2. When do you celebrate Purim? In Adar 1 or Adar 2? Right? It's a good question, right? Because you, you repeat the same month twice. It's like Groundhog Month, right? So when do you have Purim? And the Gemara says the following. The Gemara says in, 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 on, on Daf Vav Amr Beis, Folio 6b, Amar of Tevi. Rav Tevi is explaining Rav Shim Ben Gamliel, who says you celebrate Purim in the second month of Adar. Why is this Amar of Tevi? Time of Rav Shim Ben Gamliel, Mismach Geula Geula Adif. The reason why we celebrate, again, this is the way we actually rule. When there are two Adars, we always have Purim in the second Adar. I believe next year we'll have two Adars, and we're going to have Purim in the second Adar, not in the first one. You would think that you should have it in the first one, because we have a rule, we always try to make a mitzvah as soon as possible. We try to do a mitzvah as soon as we can. We don't want to let it sit around and get stale and moldy. But yet, when it comes to Purim, we do it in the second Adar. Why? Says the Gemara, Mismach Geula Geula Adif. We want to combine. We want to juxtapose. We want to put the redemption of Purim next to the redemption of Pesach. So if we had it in Adar Aleph, then there would be 60 days between Purim and Pesach. We want it to be much shorter so we do it in Adar Beis, in which case there's 30 days between Purim and Pesach. Technically, maybe 59 it would have been if it was Adar A and B. But in any case, as a matter of fact, many people, the, the, the Mishnah Brewer brings this down, that we're supposed to talk at our Purim Suda. I don't know if you guys did this last week, but at your Purim meal, you're supposed to start mentioning the laws of Pesach. Huh? You know about that? Huh? There we go. All right, one more thing you didn't get right, huh? I can't get anything right, Rabbi. Every time I get on the Zoom with you, you tell me one more thing that I didn't do right. Okay, but you know what you did right? You got on this. You're listening to this right now. So you did that incredibly right. So give yourself back a pat on the back. Okay, in any case, but there definitely is a custom to listen, to have a halacha spoken about Pesach at your Purim meal. Shloshim yom kodam achag, sholim, 
30 days before a holiday, we're supposed to start talking about the holiday. On Purim, we start talking about Pesach. And again, if we have a question of when Pesach fall, when Purim falls out, it's going to be the one closer to Pesach because we want to juxtapose the Geula of Purim, the redemption of Purim to the redemption of Pesach. Furthermore, it gets even, it gets even, so that there is, you see already some connection between Pesach and between Purim and Pesach, but there's more. There's a famous statement that is made into a song that is sung by many a drunk young yeshiva boy on Purim. And it's Misha Nechnas Adar Marvin Mesemcha, which means when Adar comes in, we increase our joy. Okay, depending on how much they drink, that's usually how it sounds. Okay, right. Oh, uh, we burn out. Yeah, nothing more to drink. Nothing wine. Okay, all right. That's kind of how it sounds. In any case, um, but we sing Misha Nechnas Adar Marvin Mesemcha. When Adar comes in, we increase our joy says Rashi something strange on that exact statement, which can be found, if you want to look it up, in the Talmud, Tractate Tainus, page Chavtes Amadala, folio 29a, says Rashi over there, Misha Nichas Adar, Mar Simcha, when Adar comes in, you increase your Simcha, Rashi says, Yemei Nisim Hayul Yisrael. These were days of miracles for the Jewish people. Purim, Pesach, Purim and Pesach. And I'm like, huh, did I miss something in class? Because what I remember is that Adar had Purim, not Pesach. But yet Rashi is saying, the reason why you should increase your joy come Adar is not just because Purim is coming, but Pesach is coming, okay? So there's some kind of clear connection here between Purim and Pesach. The joy of Adar, melds right into the joy of Nisan and Pesach. What is the joy and how do I connect Purim and Pesach? So there was a Izar. The Tsar was the king of Russia. And the Tsar in the olden times, when people used to get married, especially royalty, they would get married um, and they would get married as part of a political alliance, right? People, when they got married, often, especially if they were kings or queens, when they were getting married, it wasn't out of this deep, incredible love that they had fostered for each other. It was usually about a political alliance. It was about creating something that was good for both countries. So people, you know, the king of England would marry the, the, the princess from Spain and so on and so forth, or France and Spain or France and England or Russia and Spain, Russia and France, whatever it was. So this king... He marries a French princess. Now, of course, she doesn't speak Russian. That's okay. She comes with a whole retinue of ladies-in-waiting. She comes with a whole group of, you know, palace ladies. And they really are kind of the ones who deal with her the whole time. It was more of a formality. The two kings would come together. They'd make a big wedding celebration. And all was good. So the Tsar of Russia marries this princess from France. Okay? And... uh, (laughs) Pretty quickly after they get married, and she's she's wonderful, she's beautiful, she's smart, she's talented, right? Uh, she's got all the all the uh, the advantages, all right. But soon after they get married, the secret police comes to the czar and says, "You know, uh, your queen, she's actually been in touch with some of the generals here, and she's trying to make a a coup and overthrow you." Your new queen, right? 
Your new queen is trying to make a coup to overthrow you, right? Like what's going on right now in Myanmar, right? Right, they wanna make a coup. She, she's trying to overthrow, she's talking to the generals and, and promising them that if they follow her and they overthrow you, then they're gonna unite with France together and they'll be the most strongest empire in the whole world. And she's gonna give them all kinds of seats and power and benefits. The king is shocked. We just got married, right? She's already trying this, it's crazy. So he calls her in and he's furious. Ah, yes, I, I, I don't understand what you'll say, the king, please, me honor, yo, very good. You know, she's like, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm so sorry, I, I, I don't know, no, no, me, no, I didn't, no, no. I, general, I don't talk to you, general, don't speak French, do parler français, you know. All right, he denies it the first time, but it keeps going on. Denies it the second time, the third time. After a certain point, the king is furious. Like this is going on now on a regular basis. It's like they're making a mockery of him in his own in his own palace. She's constantly trying to seek out support from the military wing of the government to try to overthrow the king and reconnect with her French people, and they're gonna take over Russia. This crazy stuff going on. Now, normally the king would just if someone was trying to do that. The king would just order his head blown off, right? With like a cannon, you know what I'm saying? Like there's actually in, in, in Russia, they have, you could see it in, in Moscow, in the Kremlin, they have the largest cannon ever made in history, right? It's, the, it's this just massive, massive cannon uh, made out of like this cast iron steel. It's huge. It's got like a, a hole big enough to, to put a whole, I mean, a whole family into it basically. I mean, it's, it's, it's the largest cannon ever, you know? If the czar, normally someone's trying to like create a rebellion, you, just, you put the person down the cannon with a bunch of uh, firework, you know, fire powder and you shoot them off into the, to the next, you know, galaxy, whatever it is, you know, but it's the queen and she's wonderful and she's beautiful and she's so sweet, except for when she's doing those really annoying things like trying to make a coup and overcome, overtake his kingdom. And the king doesn't really want to give up on her. So he tries again and again and again, and she just doesn't get it. And finally, he tells her, of course, through an interpreter, he's like, listen carefully, ever since you've got into my palace, you've been trying to reach out to any general, any colonel, any lieutenant, any captain who you can speak to, to try to make a coup to overthrow me and get me out of the picture and take control of my government. If you were a commoner, you'd be dead so long ago, but you're my wife but I, I, I can't keep you here anymore. I can't do that. Cause you keep trying to overthrow me, you fool. I keep warning you and talking to you. And every time you say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm not gonna do this again. Oh, no, me, no, do the, you know, like whatever. But like, you're not keeping to your word. I'm gonna throw you out. And I'm gonna send you off to Siberia where you're gonna go live with a bunch of peasants. You wanna see what that looks like? Go right ahead. If you ever do this again, you're out. And sure enough, she does it again. She does it again. That's it, the king puts her on a, on a train, sends her out into the middle of Siberia, okay? And now she's living in a town with a bunch of Russian ignorant peasants, nice guys, nice guys, can't read, can't write. There's no culture. Back in, in St. Petersburg, you know, she had the ballet and she had all this culture and she had all this, you know, there's was, there was a lot of things going on. There was music and there was you know, classical music and there was theater and drama and, 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 and all, all kinds of things. And now she's living out in middle of nowhere, 
right? In the middle of nowhere in the Siberian hinterlands. Now, what you would think would happen would be that she would feel so bad, she would beg forgiveness. And not forgiveness like politicians give forgiveness, where they say, I never meant to do anything wrong, but I'm sorry. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't do, but I'm sorry. Like yesterday, there was a very prominent politician here in America who did one of these weird kind of like, I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm sorry. Okay, but not like that. Like you would expect that the queen would just go to the king and say, I am so sorry. I did something terrible. I really did. I tried to make a coup against you in your palace. That's horrible. And I did intend to do it. And I don't know what was going through my mind and I feel horrible about it. And therefore I'm apologizing and I'm sincere about it. I'm not trying to rationalize it away and say, I didn't mean it. I, I, I did mean it. I was wrong. As a matter of fact, by the way, in this week's Torah portion, when the Jewish people do the golden calf, which is a terrible sin, the first thing that Moshe comes up when he says, he, when, when Moshe comes up to plea on behalf of the Jewish people, he starts off with the following words, Ana Hashem chata ha'am hazeh chata gedola. Please, Hashem, this people has made a terrible sin. No excuses, no rationalizations. No, I, I didn't mean it. I thought I was just trying to be playful. None of that. None of that. I'm sorry. I did something wrong. I caused pain. So that's what you would expect this queen to do. She's living out in Siberia right now. But crazily enough, in Siberia, she starts talking to like anybody who's wearing a uniform, like the local police chief. She's like, yo, let's make a coup. Let's overthrow the, the czar and like, I'll make you the top military professional in the entire Franco-Russo army. We're going to take over. We'll have the whole France and we'll have the whole Russia. And you're going to be in charge. Help me out, man. It's crazy. You're talking to, what are you talking to? Talking to a low-level police chief in a village in the middle of nowhere. And the police chief is afraid for his life. Because if anyone finds out that he's, this lady's talking to him about that, they're going to have his head. She's like, shut up, stop talking to me about it, get out of here. But no, she doesn't, she doesn't. She keeps coming in every day. She, she bakes some cakes and cookies and she comes in. She's like, here, look what I made for you. Hey, listen, let's make a revolution. Let's make a revolution. Finally, he's about had it with her. One day, him and a bunch of his soldiers, they just grab her, they physically pick her up. They drag her out of the police station in the back and to the forest. And they just start beating her up. They're like, what's wrong with you? Stop it, stop. They're beating her up, beating her up. And finally there, as she's laying in, in the snow, bloodied up, pounding, they're pounding on her. She's like, stop, stop, I'm the queen, please. In the name of the king, in the name of the czar, stop it, stop it, please. And as soon as she does this, the craziest thing happens. Out of the trees, out of the, there's somewhere in the background, all these soldiers come and they pull everybody off the queen. And suddenly the queen realizes that even though the king sent me away, he was protecting me the whole time. He was watching over me the whole time. He had a secret police. He had a secret army. Wherever I was in the village, wherever I went, he was there watching over me, even here in the middle of Siberia. And she goes home. They bring her home. They get her medical care. And now she finally is... She's, she's truly sorry now. She realizes, she starts realizing and reflecting. She realizes that she's been nothing but horrible to this king. And he's been nothing but great and gracious to her. 
And he, he could have killed her five times already and she, he'd be totally justified. And yet he keeps standing there for her. And even when he sends her away, he's still protecting her. And this time she finally sends the king a letter and says, I am so sorry. I can't believe it. What did I do? How did I allow myself to go this way? How did I deny you who you were and all that you did for me? I can't believe it. I feel horrible. I will dedicate the rest of my life to doing nothing other than trying to bring honor to you and your kingdom. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please take me back. I promise you. I realize all the mistakes that I've made. I'll never, ever, ever make them again. The rest of my life will be dedicated to you and your kingdom and your reign and your sovereignty. Now that, my friends, is the story of Purim. We, the Jewish people, got married, so to speak, to God at Mount Sinai. As we said, the verse describes that, biyom chasunaso, biyom simchas libo, on the day of Hashem's wedding to us and the day of his great joy. We got married to God, so to speak, under the chuppah of Har Sinai. And what did we do? We started trying to cut God out of the picture. And we're going to all the intermediaries. We're going to all the armies, the generals, called Tzivah HaShamayim. We're bowing down to the entire host of the heavens. We're bowing down to every idol. The gods of the constellations and the gods of the moon and the stars, like all the nations around us. Called Tzivah HaShamayim, the armies of heavens and earth. We're trying to serve idols. And for hundreds of years, the Nevi'im, the prophets are begging us, please come back. Don't do this. What are you doing? You're in God's land. You're in God's home. You're in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Asher Eini Hashem Elokecha Bamirish Hashanah Arach Rishonah, the land that HaKadosh Baruch whose eyes are upon it from the beginning of the year till the end of the year. And what are you doing over here? You're trying to make a coup against God. You're going to his generals and trying to cut God out of the picture. That's what idol worship is. You're trying to go to God's appointees, so to speak. The constellations, the stars. And you're trying to cut God out of the picture. And it finally gets so bad that God throws us out of his house. And he sends us off to Babylonia. And even in Babylonia, we're still trying to cut God out of the picture. We don't understand. We just don't get the message that the nations of the world will never respect us when we're trying to betray our God. As much as we try to be like them, they hate us all the more. When we're trying to betray God, they'll take us out back and beat us silly. Hitler writes about this. He says the reason why he felt such an urgency to wipe out the Jewish people was because they were assimilating so rapidly. Soon we won't even know who's a Jew anymore. So we got to get them now while they're still, we still can figure out who's who. The nations of the world don't respect us when we try to leave our husband, our Lord, our God. But we keep thinking as long as we, if we just be like them, then they're going to love us. Like this pathetic little 
child who just wants so badly to be loved. So he tries to be like everybody else, dress like everybody else. And the kid like, don't dress like me. Why are, you, why are you coming to school wearing my exact clothing? Just be you, kiddo. Stop wearing the same shoes as me, the same t-shirt as me. Like, no, but I, I thought if I wear the same things as you, then you'll think that I'm like you and you'll love me. Get out of here, kiddo. So we go into Gullus, we go into exile. And what happens to us over there? We're being beaten silly. Achashverosh and Haman. And they make a decree. They're going to kill every single last one of us. And finally, as we're down on the ground, facing the snow, being beaten up, we finally say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. God, I'm so sorry. And suddenly, boom, 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 boom. There's Esther in the, in, in, in the palace. And there's Mordecai who had already saved the king's life. And all the pieces are already there the whole time. And we look back and we realize God was watching us even when he threw us out. Even when we were in exile, God was watching us the whole time and he loved us the whole time and he was caring for us the whole time. And we say, wow, God, I'm going to devote the rest of my history. We reaffirmed our acceptance of the Torah and we say to God, we're going to spend the rest of our history promoting you in this world. We promise God, we renew our vows to God. That's the story of Purim. How does that connect with Pesach? The answer is like this. When that king, after his wife sends him the letter from Siberia, begging to be taken back, you know what he does? He actually takes her back. He allows her back into the palace. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't bring her out for all the state state affairs, the dinners, the events because like there's a good chance that she's going to do this all over again i'll let you come back but you got to be in the dark so to speak i'm not proud of you exactly i don't know that i could be able to trust you that's gonna take some serious work i need to see that you are erasing all the names of the generals that you've been in touch with i need to see that you're cleaning out your rolodex that you're taking out your phone and you're deleting all those contacts right that you're dropping off all those, you're deleting all the messages with General Yushensko and, and you know, Colonel Dubrovnik or whatever it is. I need to see that you are changing your ways because you've told me a million times you're going to change and you didn't. And now I'll let you back because I love you and you, you seem sincere, but I'm not exactly ready to take you and walk down the aisle with you to a, a fancy state dinner or to the, to the ballet at my side publicly in front of everybody because you may just end up humiliating me again. So I'll take you back, but shh. And that's why the whole Purim Megillah, you don't see God's name, right? You don't see God's name in the Megillah. God takes us back, he saves us, but he's not quite proud of us just yet. If we want to get God to be proud of us, we got to put in the work of cleansing out all the things that led us to be in a state where we we were betraying God. And if we can do that properly, then God will take us back with pride and once again proclaim, B'ni B'chori Yisrael, my firstborn child is Israel, and he'll take us out with incredible miracles and incredible wonders and show the world again proudly, this is my people.
we know that when God redeems us from this final redemption, we know that Hashem is going to make such incredible miracles that they're going to make the miracles of the Exodus pale in comparison. Says the Pasuk in Yirmiyah, Parak Tesvav, sorry, Tesayan, Pasuk Yud Dalit and Tesvav, Jeremiah 16, 14, and 15. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. They will no longer say by the life of God that took the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt. We will say by the life of Hashem who gathered up the Jewish people from all over the world, from all the corners of the world, from the over 150 countries in the world that Jews live in today and how he brought them up in incredible miracles. The miracles that are coming yet with the final redemption are so great that the miracles of Egypt are gonna pale in comparison. No one talks about Michael Jordan winning his you know, basketball game at high school. It's not important. Everyone talks about how many rings did he have? How many NBA championships did he win? That's what they talk about because that, that is way more important than winning high school games. A lot of people win high school games. Not many people win six NBA championships. So when Hashem is going to do the miracles he's about to do for us, God willing, maybe even this year, hopefully, the miracles of Hashem taking us out from all over the world and bringing us back are going to be so incredible and so open and such wild miracles that when people want to describe how great God is, they're not going to be like, God who took them out of the land of Egypt. Because those miracles, those are JV miracles. You know, junior varsity miracles. The miracles that are coming are big Bold, incredible. So Hashem will one day again show the world proudly, these are my people. We got to get our act together first, though. We got to clean out our Rolodex. We got to delete all those contacts from our cell phone. We got to divorce ourselves from the evil ways that we've shown in our exile. And that is the job of the time between Purim and Pesach. On Purim, God redeemed us, but it's in darkness. He leaves himself off the page. You don't see him in the Megillah. He's like, I'll save you, but I'm not ready to have my name declared all over you. That's what Pesach is all about. And in order to get there, we've got to clean up, which of course is ironically the job of this time of year. Whether you're cleaning your house physically or not, spiritually, you definitely should be cleaning house, right? That's what this time of year is all about. When we clean our houses for Pesach, that's just an external representation of what we should be doing internally. This is the time of year to clean out. So how does that look? How does it look to go me'afela li'ora? How does it look to go from darkness to light? How does it look to clean out our house? Now, it's fascinating. We have something called the Dalad Parshios, the four Parshas that we read in between, around Purim time. There are two that we read before Purim, Parsha Shkalim, which talks about the Jewish people donating half shekels to the temple 
to cover the communal offerings, Parshas Zachar, which we read right before Purim, to remember the wicked and evil Amalek, who we're still fighting with today. And then after Purim, which will be this Shabbos in Shul, we're going to read Parshas Para, the Parsha of the red heifer. The red heifer was used to purify people in the olden times when people would become ritually impure. They would have water sprinkled upon them that had part of the ashes of the red heifer in it and various other ingredients. What other ingredients? That's my secret family recipe. No, I'm kidding. It's actually right in the Torah, very clearly. Hyssop, acacia tree, and red strings, in case you were wondering. Alrighty, but it's about the proportions. You got to get that right. And anyway, the bottom line is, so that was the part, that's the partial we're going to read this week. And then next week, we're going to read Parshas HaChodesh, where we read about HaChodesh Hazel Lachem Rosh Chodeshim. This month is the new month. So we go after Purim, we go through the process of cleansing, Paraduma, cleansing, and then we go into becoming HaChodesh Hazel Lachem. You are now Chadash. You are now a new person. The old you that kept trying to walk away from God, the old you that was ignoring God, the old you that for, for just refuse to see God in your life is gone. You've cleansed it out. And now you're a Chodesh HaZelechem. You're a new person. You've got a new personality. What does that look like? What does that look like? So let's see how the sages described the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. The Gemara says the following, in Brachos Daf Zayin Amad Aleph, Tractate Brachos Folio 17a. Rabbi Alexandri Buster the Messiah, the Matzli Amar Hachi. Rabbi Alexandri, after he finished davening, he would say the following prayer Rebon Ha'olamim, Master of the Universe. It is clear and known before you, that it is our will to do your will. Again, it's our will to do your will. We only want to serve you, God. We want to do what's right. We want to do mitzvos. We want to give tzedakah. We want to be kind. We want to be holy. We want to be loving. We want to be sanctified. We want to be tolerant. We want to have kedusha in our life. We want to have holiness in our life and how we think and how we act and what we watch and what we say and how we interact with others. We want to have I just want to have just good and kindness my whole life. That's all that we want. Continues Rabbi Alexandri. What's stopping us from being good? You know what's stopping us from being good? The leaven in the dough. The Shibud Malchios. And the subjugation to the nations around us. And he would finish this prayer by saying, Please save us from their hands. Save us from the Yetzirah. Save us from the nations around us. And then we could do what we always want to do. We just want to serve you with our full hearts. That's all we want to do. In this prayer, First of all, he, he refers, refer, refers to the subjugation of the nations. 
There were many years in which the, the non-Jewish people around us subjugated us by saying, if you worship your religion, we're gonna kill you. Think of times like the Inquisition. Or if you worship your religion, we're gonna tax you at higher rates throughout the, the medieval and indeed the last, basically the entire last millennium all over Europe. We're gonna have pogroms. We're gonna have blood libels. We're coming for you if you try to stick to your religion. If you try to follow what you believe in, we're coming for you. That was a message that we got for a long time. Baruch Hashem in America, it's been, we've been given freedom of religion, but there's no lack of subjugations of the nations around us. The ideas that filter in, the culture, the society that is so often so antithetical to our values and our beliefs, it's everywhere. It's everywhere around us. This lack of meaningful connections, this lack of real, real, real connections and real caring for other people. So much grandstanding and showboating, but there's so little true care and concern and love. So many of our values are being torn down. And we ask God, Hashem, please don't let me be subjugated by the, by the culture around me. Don't let it change me. Don't let it change who I am and what I believe in. I mean, you look at it's it's fascinating because the things that we're talking about right now, you know, uh, are things that people 25, 30 years ago, it, it, it would have been so out of the out of the realm of, of even thinking about. And yet now, if if you don't wholeheartedly support everything, then you are a horrible human being. I mean, I'm not gonna get into details, but you know the details. It's just, it's, it's, we live in a in, in such a mixed up world. We say to Hashem, please don't let the Shibud Malchus, the subjugations of the nations around me affect me. But more importantly, and more to the point of this class, we're talking about Sa'ar Shaba Isa, the leaven in the dough. The leaven in the dough is described as the root of all evil. Rabbi Alexandri describes the Yetzirah as the leaven in the dough, the chametz in the dough. Why is chametz described as the root of all evil? If you have to, if you had to think of a metaphor, imagine we said, okay, here's your homework for next week. Come up with a metaphor for the evil inclination. All right? Some of you might say, I don't know, Voldemort. You must not be an evil. I don't know what like Darth Vader. I don't know, whatever you come up with, you know, like what is evil incarnate? And what Alexandria comes up with is like the chametz. How did that happen? And the answer, my friends, is what does chametz do? Chametz is arrogance. Chametz is haughtiness. Chametz makes you puffed up on hot air. What's the difference between matzah and chametz? The only difference is that one is filled with hot air pockets. I used to work at a matzah factory when I was in... Uh, 10th grade. I dropped out of high school. And if you live in Israel and you drop out of high school, you go work in a matzah factory. That's pretty much like, that's the prescription, you know? Who else has, who else can have a job for like four months a year, right? Because the matzah factories are only open from like Hanukkah till Pesach. So, you know, if, if you have a regular nine to five job, you can't just say, boss, I'm taking off from like, from, 
you know, beginning of January to like middle mid-April. You can't do that. So it's filled with dropouts and other colorful, col colorful characters. The bakers themselves, that was like the top of the line. The people who worked actually baking the chametz, like so the ones who are, sorry, the matzah, the ones who are taking the dough and putting it into the, into the oven and rolling it flat and have to pull it out really quickly before it burns. It's a very, very highly skilled job. And those people, by the way, they're amazing. They work four months a year, three months a year, and they make so much money because it's such skilled labor and they don't work the rest of the year. They sit and learn Torah. Call a couple to them. Weirdly enough, I remember this very clearly, the baker in my matzah factory used to wear a sweater. Now you have to understand, you're standing in a room where you're in front of an open fire. That room is so hot, but yet strangely, he always wore a sweater. Okay, mysteries of the universe to be discovered at some later point. In any case, the bottom line is when we used to work in the matzah factory, there was actually an alarm that would go off. Every batch, when they would start that batch, they would hit a, a switch and the switch would start counting down 18 minutes. And when 18 minutes went off, eh, it would be like an alarm. And we had to clean out the whole factory. We had to wipe down every surface. We literally had a, a crew coming in that would wipe down. And they were very fast. It was like, it was really done incredibly quickly because they can't waste time. They're trying to churn out as many matzahs as possible. So every 18 minutes, this alarm would go off and they would literally like wipe down every little bit. So there shouldn't be even a little bit of dough left over from one batch to the next batch. Why? Because the reality is, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's yeast everywhere, like right now. Like when I go like this, I'm, I'm knocking a lot of yeast out of the way, right? There's yeast particles floating around. Did you, did you know that, huh? You didn't know that. Yeah, it's wild fermentation. As a matter of fact, exactly. If you, there are certain, um, well, grapes in general, by the way, grapes, come with yeast on their back, on the back. That's how, it's amazing. Hashem is so, Hashem is so awesome. So we created this thing called grapes. And on the outside of the grapes, you ever look on the outside of the grapes, there's like this little whitish film, sort of like a little bit, that is the yeast. So God created the grapes. And he's like, I'm gonna teach you how to make wine too. Just crush those grapes. And then the grape juice will mix with the yeast that's on the outside of the grape. I can't put the yeast on the inside of the grape because then it would prematurely ferment and it would go bad in the grape. So I leave the yeast for you on the outside of the grape. How, how amazing is that? Like it's, God is so wildly amazing. He literally puts the yeast just outside. So when you crush the grapes and you break them open and the juice starts oozing out, it gets washed all over the yeast and it starts creating wine on its own. Most modern wine producers today will literally kill all the natural yeast because they want to use their specific strain of yeast. Although you can often buy, buy bottles. I know Segal's from Israel makes a wild fermentation. They use whatever yeast is on the grapes and that's it. Whatever strain it is, whatever. In any case, but there's not just yeast on your grapes. There's yeast everywhere. If you leave a dough out, there are enough yeasts that will just start landing on it and start fermenting it on its own, which is why you have to Make sure that before 18 minutes goes, you got to get rid of all the stuff because it will take 18 minutes before the yeast starts interacting enough with the dough to make it start to rise. And Lester here is saying that yeast in the air is how one makes sourdough bread. I did not know that. I know that's a quite a hipster thing now to make sourdough bread. I think once you make the initial one, then you got to bring, you got to basically keep 
rolling over the, the dough from one to the next. I, I don't, I, I know it's a very, today right now, it's very hip to make sourdough bread. Um, I call it, I personally call the sourdough bread overrated fad number 23. You know what I'm saying? It comes right after Tamagotchis, you know? In any case, so the bottom line is, but I'm sorry, by the way, Lester, if you, if you really enjoy making sourdough bread, I'm sure it's amazing. Your sourdough bread must be better than the ones that I've had before. I, I find them overrated. But in any case, but I do like wine and that's made with fermentation. In any case, so if you let just dough lie on the table, it's going to start to rise on its own from the fermentation from the yeast in the air. And what does rising mean? Rising means that the yeast is working its little molecular magic. And part of the molecular magic is it's chewing up the sugars inside the bread, inside the wheat, which is of course made out of carbs, which is sugars are complex carbohydrates. Sorry, sugars are simple carbohydrates. Car uh, carbs are more complex sugars. In any case, the yeast starts eating away at the sugars and it starts excreting a lot of gas. The same way we breathe in oxygen, breathe out carbon dioxide, the little yeast starts breathing out a lot of carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide gets trapped in the bread and therefore the bread gets a little bit bigger because there's nowhere to go out. That's why when you cut through bread, you see all these little air pockets. So when you have a, a dough that's lying flat and you leave it for a while and then it just bloop, it's like that, what is in it that makes it so big? It's just hot air. It's not any bigger or any better than the other one. It just feels like it's bigger and better. That's what chametz is, chametz is arrogance. Chametz is, I think I know better. Chametz is, I am better than. Chametz is when you walk around thinking that you're better than your neighbor, that you know more than your friends, that you're special somehow. Maybe you're special because you're successful and you're really, really smart. In which case, that's no reason for you to feel I'm better than anybody else. That means that God gave you an incredible, um, incredible amount of talent and you have an obligation to use it to better the world way more than your non-smart friends. And you probably are failing miserably, whereas your non-smart friends might not be because you were just given that much more, you were invested in that much more by God. Or maybe sometimes we feel like, even sometimes people get arrogant from all the tsars they go through. Like, yeah, I can handle these kind of tsars. Most people, they can't handle the pain. They can't handle the challenge. So God doesn't challenge them. But me, I'm special. I'm special. God knows he can challenge me and I can handle it. I can hack it. So I can, I, I can hack it. I'm special. That's why God gives me so much difficulty. And by the way, there's, there's actually truth to that. In the sense that if you actually overcome all this challenge, you should be humbled that God gave you a great challenge and you were able to overcome it. But you need to recognize that Hashem, lo yazvenu biyado, tzofa rasha l'tzadikum v'vakash hamiso, the rasha, the evil inclination. The so'ar shabayisa is always trying to topple us down. But Hashem, lo yazvenu biyado. If you are successful at beating your demons, it's because God helped you and guided you every bit of the way. Not a reason for you to be conceited. Not a reason for you to be haughty and to think you know better than everybody else. You go back to the very root of sin. The very first sin ever, Adam eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree. But Adam says, I know better, God. I know you told me not to eat from it, but I came up with a better plan. I'm going to eat from it. I'm going to plunge the world into darkness. And then I'm going to serve you in a world of darkness. And I'm going to be the white knight in shining armor, the, shy, the knight 
coming through the darkness. God's like, you thought you knew better than me, huh? I told you what I wanted of you. You had the arrogance to think that you know better than me. How self-important do you think you are? How puffed up are you? That is chametz. We think we know better than our spouses. We think we know better than our rabbis. We think we know better than everybody in our community. That is chametz. The Jewish people serve the idol in this week's Torah portion. They serve the golden calf. Hashem told them, don't make images. But we need something that we can physically relate to, that we can touch, that we can feel. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. They have a better plan. God said, don't do it. No, no, but but we got to do it because God probably doesn't understand us. If he really knew what we were going through, he'd be okay with it. You got it better figured out than God, right? You got it better figured out than God. That is what the Sa'or Shabbat is. That's what the Yetzirah is. If you think about it, every evil inclination is telling you, don't worry, it's okay. You under, like meaning, in, even though you know that God said, don't do X, Y, and Z, but like you've got it figured out. It's okay because you were brought up this way. It's okay because you really need this right now. It's okay because God will understand. It's okay because I'm just, I can't deal with it. Whatever you think, that's all your puffed upness saying, I got it better than God. I figured it out better. That is the Sa'or Shabbat Isa. We know the greatest servant of God is Moshe. The Torah tells us about Moshe. Lochain Avdi Moshe, behold, Basi Neman, who? My servant, Moshe. He's my most trustworthy servant. And what does it say about Moshe? Moshe was more humble than any man who ever lived. The more humble you are, the more ready you are to accept God's wisdom. And it's no wonder that the first Parsha that we read after Purim, when we start getting on this work, this work of doing the cleansing out, the internal cleansing, so we don't go try to make coups against God anymore. Today, of course, today, of course, the biggest Avodazara is not the Avodazara of today. There's many Avodazaras today. Very few of us are bowing down to seven-headed gods or whatever it is. Today, the Eitzahara is atheism. Because I read a really, really smart book written by Stephen Hawking or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or whatever it is. And they're such smart people. And I feel like I'm much smarter when I tell people that religion is a crutch for the masses. I'm so smart. I figured it out. Of course, the smartest people in the world haven't figured out all the biggest questions. Like, how did this stuff get here for the Big Bang? Yeah. Where did it all come from? No one knows. How did life come up on this planet out of non-life? How did organic life start? No one knows. All the biggest questions, no one knows. No one can explain. But because you read a Christopher Hitchens book, you think you're so smart, you figured it out. Ah, there's no God. I'm enlightened. Look at me. I'm so special. I can make fun of biblical stories and write very sophisticated articles saying, no, 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 I'm not religious because I'm too smart and I only believe what I can understand, <laughs> basically. Or you can't understand diddly squat. We can't understand literally diddly squat. We can't figure out all the biggest questions in science, dark matter, dark energy, the big bang. We have no understanding of anything, literally. 
If you want to understand how little we know, read a book called, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the book. It's a great physics book talking about all the things that we don't know. Hold on a second. Stay with me, guys. I got to get you this book. This book right here, We Have No Idea, written by two top-notch scientists, literally like top-notch scientists, and they break down how little we understand about the world around us, literally, how much we have just no clue and no understanding whatsoever of all the underpinnings, all the underpinnings that are going on in this world, nothing, we have no idea, we have no idea, but yet we feel so smart when we say, huh, I don't believe in this because I can't explain it. As if like you could explain everything else. So that's today a little bit of what we need to be able to say. I don't understand. There's greater wisdom than me out there. As a matter of fact, that's what Parshas Parah is all about. The first week after Pesach, after Purim, we read Parshas Parah. Parshas Parah is about the Parah Duma, the red heifer. The red heifer was a ritual that they used to use in the temple where they would take a calf that was fully red with you know, every hair on his body was red and he had not been used in any kind of labor or work and they would make a special sacrifice out of him. They would mix his waters. They would mix his ashes, I'm sorry, with hyssop and acacia and water and, and, and they would sprinkle it on people and then the people who were sprinkled on would become pure and the people who were sprinkling would become unpure. It's the hardest mitzvah to understand. Even Shlomo, the Chacham Mikal Adam, the wise of all men, says, I tried, I investigated, I tried to figure it out. I can't understand it. I can't understand it. I can't grasp it. Shlomo Amelach couldn't even get this one. But you know what? We learn about it because then we remember that if there's mitzvahs out there that we don't understand, that's a good thing because we're not the smartest wisdom out there. There's wisdom way greater out there. It's important for us to recognize that there's greater intellects out there. If we, it's, it's just such amazing arrogance. We say, if I can't understand it, then, I, then I'm, I don't agree with it. That's basically saying my brain is the smartest brain in the world. And anything that doesn't fit into my brain doesn't exist. Do you guys, are you with me? The sheer arrogance over here? If I can't wrap my head around it, then, then I don't believe in it. Really? Do you understand E equals MC squared? Do you really understand it? Do you understand why the speed limit of the universe is the speed of light? Do you know how all the matter in the whole universe just came out of nowhere? Right? The Ramban, Nachmanides, talks about, by the way, it's amazing. One of the beliefs that we have in science is this concept that everything is there at the first moment, the law of conservation of energy. Everything was there at the first moment of creation. And then over time, it all just kind of clumped together and became planets and mountains and molehills and trees and zebras and so on and so forth. Nachmanides talked about that. 800 years ago, Nachmanides was saying that the first moment of creation, everything was there, all the energy, and then later just got put into place. You understand all that? You get that? But yet you live in this world just fine. It's okay. It's okay to have a little bit of humility. It's okay to say, I don't understand everything. It's okay to say, I'm trying to get it, but in the meantime... I believe that God took us out of Egypt with great wonders and great miracles because we're still here today. And that itself is a great miracle and a great wonder. 
because our people for thousands of generations have been telling over the story of our exodus from Egypt and our Pesach seders. And my father told me about it and his father told him about it. His father going back all the way back. No one's lying about these things. They didn't make these things up. And by the way, this is very different than Christianity. If you think, well, Christians also do. No, Christians actually, no. No one who even introduced Christianity to the world ever saw JC. Do you guys know that? Christianity was introduced to the world mostly by Paul, Saul. And he lived long after JC died. There was no such thing as parents saying to their grandchildren, like, my grandparent was there by JC. They weren't. No. Paul had a vision in which JC came to him and told him all this stuff. But Paul wasn't there. He never said he was there. We sit down in our Pesach Seder on, 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 on Pesach night, and we say to our children, this is what happened to our forefathers when they came out of Egypt. You know how I know this? Because my father told me. And his father told him. And his father told him. And his father told him. And it goes all the way back until the people who were sitting at the first Pesach Seder ever in Egypt with blood on their doorsteps, on their doorposts. And I see that this people, this Jewish people, miraculously still here today, despite the attempts of every nation in the world to quash us. It's amazing. The International Criminal Court right now, right, is coming to charge the Israelis for all these terrible war crimes. Like if they build a house on the wrong side of the green line, it's like a terrible war crime. Assad in Syria has butchered over half a million of his own people. He's gassed them repeatedly with chemical weapons. Right now, right, right now, as we speak, in, in Yemen, the Houthi, the Houthi rebels are murdering and killing. In Myanmar, in Burma, there is a military junta that just took over and it just killed yesterday dozens of people with live ammunition during a protest. And the International Criminal Court is busy worried about Israel, a nation that's been attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked but we defended ourselves. And therefore we ought to be thrown in, be made out into international criminals. It's, it's, it's unreal and yet we're here. We're here, that's the proof. Because we sit down on our Pesach Seder and we tell the stories of what happened to our, children, to our great, 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 great grandparents. We need that humility to say, Hashem, there's greater wisdom. You have way greater wisdom. Anybody who could create the human cell, all you need to do is literally, I, I want to make a museum one day. And the museum will just be called the cell. And every room will just be a, an organelle in every one of your human cells. You're going to have a nucleolus and it's going to have 23 towers in it that are your DNA, and it's gonna be perfectly matched up. And there's gonna be ribosomes that are factories creating all kinds of proteins. And there's gonna be mitochondrias. I got you, I got you high, I'm a little bit over time, I'm sorry. But you got me on a roll right now. You got me on a roll right now. You're gonna have Golgi bodies, right? You're gonna have just cytoplasm throughout this, this gooey, Surface moving you around from place to place. It's, it's going to be incredible. It'll be vacuoles carrying energy and nutrients all over the cell to exactly where they're needed. You can make a museum out of a human cell. That's how amazing a human cell is. You think you can understand that? You can wrap your head around that? 
You don't need to wrap your head around everything. You can have a little bit of humility out there. There's greater wisdom than me. Godly wisdom is way greater than mine. When we have a mitzvah like paraduma, which we cannot understand that mitzvah, we cannot understand the mitzvah of the red heifer. Shlomo Melch couldn't get it. That is the first mitzvah we read about. You want to start cleansing yourself of that arrogance? Let's start with the mitzvah of paraduma. Zos chukas Torah. The law of the Torah is there are things here that you're not going to understand, and that's okay because there's greater wisdom than you. The minute you can start saying that, you can start embracing your Yiddishkeit, your Judaism, your challenges. And guess what? You become more humble to people around you too. Because maybe I don't understand why this person, I just had somebody in my house the other day, a teenager. Teenagers, are they're young, they're teenagers. Like, I don't understand why this person's doing that. They did this and then, and they're talking about a certain significant event, whatever. I'm like, you're exactly right. You don't understand why this person is doing that. You have no idea what traumas they've been through in their life. You have no idea what they've been through. So you're, you're right, you don't understand. Have a little bit more humility. We judge our friends the same way. I don't understand. I went through the same things and I didn't go like that. I didn't do this. You didn't go through the same things. Every, every human being is different. We all had our own stories. So you start developing a little bit of humility towards God, a little bit of humility towards your friends. Suddenly you're ready for redemption. So that is the connection between Purim and Pesach. We go from darkness where God says, I'll save you because you're calling out for me, but I don't want to call my name upon you just yet hopefully moving towards Pesach, where if we can properly cleanse ourselves out and remove all the arrogance and really come back to God and really be ready to embrace him fully when God then will come out with us for Pesach and say, Beni Bechor Yisrael, my firstborn child is the Jewish people and save us with open, incredible, beautiful miracles. Bring us back to the land of salvation. And Sham Nochal Menazvachem and we'll eat from the current Pesach, God willing, even this year. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for coming and thank you for listening.